Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. The world at the moment is thinking very carefully about what it means to include people in all parts of society. And of course, it's thinking about what it means to exclude people as well too. In a perfect world, we'd have everybody in the tent, wouldn't we? I'm really, really excited today to be talking to Ico Bethea Adriano because we've got someone with us today who really understands about how to help people be at their best and how to build a community where we can include people rather than exclude them. I'm super excited, I can't wait, let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our series premium sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course. We are delighted to be partnering with the team at Open Parachute. If you want to teach mental health to your students, but you don't have time to become an expert, Open Parachute can help. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. How is the weather treating you in Sydney this morning? Look, Adriano, it's pouring. It's tears from heaven today. And do you know why it's tears from heaven today, Adriano? Here we go. It's tears from heaven because both my beloved Waratahs and your beloved Blue Baggers of Carlton have lost their last game. So how are you feeling, mate? Are you okay? Look, I'm okay. I, I was able to get to the the mighty MCG last night. For those people listening internationally, that is our Melbourne cricket ground. It's one of the most famous and iconic stadiums in the world. And it was great to be back with people at a stadium watching live sport. But unfortunately, true to form, my Blue Baggers weren't able to... Um, produce the goods again. But we did lose to the reigning premiers, a team that has probably been the team of the last generation. So I'll take uh, I'll take that a little bit. Anyway, talking about allowing people in and mixing with community, I'm so excited about our conversation today with our guest from North America. Aiko, I'm going to launch directly straight into the very first question. And that very first question is a question we ask all of our Game Changer guests. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today? So today, let's just start there. I work for myself and I'm an executive coach and I lean a lot into equity work and operations work. But I got here from, I would say, starting as a litigation attorney, but even before there, I always think it's important to talk about your background, especially when you're talking about DEI so that people know the lens that you're bringing to the work. So I am from South Carolina, Spartanburg, which is uh, the area I'm from was a very poor area and an all black area. But in my household, we spoke Japanese, my mother is Japanese. And so the idea of equity and being an insider or an outsider has always been a part of my narrative from just a part of who I am and recognizing that. So I went on litigation attorney, worked at the city of Atlanta, worked with uh, Stacey Abrams, went and left law practice and went to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And then I led DNI work at Fred Hutch. But throughout it all, equity has always been a part of the work. 
So much of your work has been centered around fostering the emotional intelligence and resilience with executive teams and your advocacy for kind of underrepresented individuals, you know, in business and organizations. How can we actually create more equitable and inclusive teams in learning communities or schools, for instance? Yeah, I think that there's so much about one, having your own self-awareness about your own story and who you are and how you show up in the world. And it's not only about who you are to yourself, but how do other people perceive me and see me? Mm -hmm. So that's that ability to be able to step out of how you experience yourself and see yourself, but how might somebody else see me? How might somebody else experience me? And what does that mean for my narrative? What does that mean in terms of how I show up? So I think in schools, you think about teachers and teachers being aware of how is the student experiencing me? What is it that's obvious that's going to connect us, but also what's obvious about what might disconnect us? And how do I bridge that gap? How do I make sure that we are together as a team versus anything that's in between us? How do I eliminate that? Name it and see it, not ignore it, but how do I make sure that it's not creating a distance between us? That notion of distance is very interesting, isn't it, Ico? Because in all societies, there are people who perceive themselves to be on the in-group and people who perceive themselves to be on, on the outer or at the margins. In the last week or so, I've been doing some work with our, our South African client schools and, and they're doing some tremendous work around transformation, which in their country means something even bigger than, than transformation would normally mean is as they're contemplating how to achieve racial justice in, in a nation with a, with a background that's far from good in that area. One of the things that we've been noticing is that you can have a very good school and yet around the margins where the outsiders live, because in any community there are people who feel as though they are, as we said, people need to do work to help bring people in. And it seems in education that that's the work of personalization. I'm really interested in your background because you work as a coach, which is highly personalized sort of stuff, bringing, bringing people in. How do you personalize what you do to coach others to help them to achieve their goals, but then also to achieve broader outcomes for society around all the good stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that one of the most important factors about being a coach is um, with someone else is creating that coaching alliance and understanding, you know, how are you partnering together? Have you, as I said before, closed that gap of space between the two of you? Because it does require a degree of trust. A coaching relationship is somewhat intimate and the person should feel safe speaking with you. Um, so I think there's that part. I, I came from this uh, coaching institute called Hudson Institute, and their premise is self as coach. So there's an expectation that throughout you are learning, you're growing, you're reassessing yourself. It's not the idea that you're coming in with all of the answers. So I think that that constant learner mindset helps you as a coach in creating an alliance with somebody else and connecting them. So at once you're coming, you're showing up as your full self with all the stories and experiences that make up who you are. And at the same time, you're holding those to the side and you're inviting the story and the experience of your client in. So you're never ignoring what you're bringing to the table so that you're, you're hyper aware of it. So you know how that might be impacting the relationship and what's happening and even your thoughts and biases. 
and you're constantly creating invitation for the client to share aspects and part of themselves. So you're showing up more fully as yourself, even though you're suspending your judgments and how you're coming up and what your story is that you're telling yourself, but you're constantly honing in on how does that support and inform what this alliance is with this client? How is that going to help in terms of knowing what the client wants and is trying to accomplish here? And what are the stories that might not be spoken? So there's stealth intentions, right? So you wanna bring as much as you can um, so that it's visible. And the more things are named and they're visible and you're aware of them, the more you're able to respond to them and actually use them in a way that's going to empower you for a greater outcome. And so sometimes that can be bigger than even yourself, right? Or even what you initially thought that you wanted um, when you brought to the table, brought the issues to the table. This is a really fascinating conversation because so much of what you're sharing around the construct of the coach bringing so much of themselves to each coachee kind of encounter is really consistent with effective teaching. Teachers who turn up and are, and are present, not just physically, but emotionally present and connected to the young people in their care are the ones that often yield the best and most effective results, not just academic results. I'm talking about human results, results that are about a, a deep connectedness to the other, a deep consciousness to the other. And, and they have a, a real capacity to allow their students, irrespective of race or, or, or religion or um, ethnicity or sexual orientation to be seen and heard. I love that. I love that, you're, that that's something that is really important about the coach and coachee relationship. Coaching is also something that is inherently part of professional learning in schools. Many, many schools have adopted the notion of some type of peer coaching program or peer coaching model, a model where it's, it's designed to help an individual through the different career stages uh, of their journey. But, but bigger than that, it's not just about how can I help you progress in your career to the next role. It's about helping the, the person see their fullness and their, their inherent possibility. I often have found, Iko, that when I'm coaching someone, I have individuals that come into that space and simply say, Adriano, just tell me, just tell me what I should do. And of course, uh, the idea of a good coach is that we want the person to be the one who takes ownership of whatever options are presented to them. How do we continue to kind of move it from that mentor, more the mentor kind of relationship where someone simply comes in and says, just give me the solution, uh, you know, to, to the role where we're helping the individual to develop this continuous learning and unlearning paradigm in their own DNA so that, yes, they're still coming to you, but they're coming to you and presenting a range of options just to unpack, to test, you know, to query, but they are still owning it. How do we move, help people move to that space? So I love the fact that you named just right off that there's a difference between being a coach and being a mentor, Yeah. just like the difference between a coaching relationship and a consulting relationship, right? Um, and that idea that you want the client to be empowered to come to their own answers. So there's a lot of different ways to um, facilitate that. One, of course, is that you're not directive, right? But this idea of asking the questions that are going to help them to observe things in different ways. One is sometimes when you're in the middle of something, a system, you may not even recognize what's happening in the system versus happening with you. 
So that idea of even being able to help someone separate themselves from the system and being an outside observer. So what are you noticing at your school? What are you noticing in terms of what's happening or what's not? How are other people responding to the space? So you're actually inviting someone to take on different perspectives they might not have had before. And one thing that's really powerful, going all the way back to what Phil mentioned in the beginning about equity and who's inside and who's outside. One of the things is that oftentimes we don't recognize that we're part of an in-group or we don't recognize what power that brings. So the coach can help someone actually see different dimensions of how they're playing within a system, how components of the system are engaging with them that they may have never dreamed, never thought, wow, I'm actually seeing as somebody who has power because I feel really disempowered. So you're able to help them not only see themselves in different ways, see how a system responds to different things. And now they have real choice because they have more visibility of what's happening they have more visibility of components of how they might be perceived that they never thought about. So you're helping them to transcend from their own funneled view to having a more expansive one. And now they're even more empowered to be able to name things and think about, well, if this is, a, if this is possibly true, then I would want to respond like this to the system if I'm gonna have this impact. I would want to say this, stop doing this or start doing this. So it's helping them to see more and to even see themselves differently see even naming the type of power they have that they may not have even realized that they have. I love your use of language. I I'm just, I'm sitting here and listening to you and the way in which you put together, you know, the markers of the sorts of things that we could be thinking about. I'm just really enjoying it. I want to talk to you for a little bit, if I can, about narratives, because I think narrative is, you, you've mentioned it, storytelling, it's incredibly powerful. I have two narratives sitting in my background, which just Sometimes they tantalise and sometimes they torture me. And one is one is sort of, and they're, they're, they're my grandparents. Like Adriano, I'm the son of immigrants. You know, one set of grandparents fled the pogroms in Eastern Europe and came over at a time when there weren't that many Polish Jews in Australia. And the other set of grandparents, you know, there's there's a, there's some story of dispossession in Ireland um, as, as well too. So it's an interesting mix. And and trying to trying to find the way to tell the story because. Uh, you know, it's uh, as, as Adriana will know, our, our partner Leanne Wilson, who is a proud Bidger and Karakara woman, who also acknowledges her South Sea Islander descent, she will talk very much about the joining storylines, that the way that we connect communities to join our storylines together. So if I don't understand your story and I don't understand my story, how do we connect it together so that there might be a shared story? And while we respect the difference between us, it's only the similarities that combine us together. Uh, and, uh, and that sort of give and take around that. How do we help people to find a sense of narrative in their lives when that is anathema to them? How do we help people to build a sense of the storyline of their lives so that they might be able to help connect it to those of others? So I think that context is everything. The way that I might guide somebody through that really is about meeting them where they are. Where do they see the gaps or the deficits in their story? Because at the end of the day, we all have our lived experience, whether or not you know the generation before you, you know your history or legacy as um, in from your ancestral home or not, you still know what your narrative is in terms of the shoes you've been walking in. So I think often it's not even just the story standing by itself that's important. It is what is the learning and meaning of it to you? What does, that, what does your lived experience mean to you? And I think helping people unpack that is important. And 
one of the unfortunate things I think is that a lot of us don't have the luxury of time to understand that or to even think about what does this mean to me? What does this tell me about who I am? And what does it mean about who I want to be? So even that idea of being able to have the luxury to speak to somebody and unpack what is my narrative and what do I want it to be is absent. But I do think that we do, we understand our stories even in intuitive ways. When we hear stories from other people, very similar to the the, um, narrative you just shared with us is that we either see ourselves in it or we see ourselves in contrast to it. And sometimes it's both. And sometimes that's like uh, starting to create the guardrails and the boundaries around, oh, this is who I understand I am because I know I'm not that. Oh, this is what I understand that I want to be because, wow, I see that this other person has walked this walk and I want to be like that too. So it's not even just so much of knowing what your like ancestral legacy is. We would want to know that, but who are you know now and how did you get here? And what is the meaning making you have of that? And what does it inform you about where you want to go and how you're going to get that there? And who do you want to be? What do you want your story to be? And that's the great thing about being a person is being able to have the ability to reason and to start making intentional decisions about, well, wow, if I don't want to be that, what does it mean for me to go this way? If I see this person has this amazing way of seeing the world and what the impact they're making and I want to do that, how do I start writing my story to be like that? Let's pause for a moment to remind our listeners about the important work of Open Parachute for Wellness in Schools. You know your students are struggling with their mental health, but you're not a trained therapist. Open Parachute can help you. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. It's um, so much of what you're doing for us is you're, you're identifying the individual building blocks of an approach towards self-determination and, and living a purpose-driven life. So, so much of this is, is so important and, and, and so valuable. We would argue that in any school community, learning begins with belonging. It all starts with belonging. If we don't feel as though we belong, it's hard for us to achieve our potential. And if we don't feel as though we belong and if we're not achieving our potential, it's hard for us to do good and right in the world. So lots of schools at the moment are trying really hard um, at the issue of belonging and particularly events of the last couple of years and perhaps a little bit longer back are promoting a particular awareness of issues to do with diversity and equity and inclusion and people are building diversity statements and they're trying to hold special events that shine a light on particular groups in schools. That's a good starting point, but having something glossy on the wall and me- and lovely worded statements and an occasional event that celebrates a different type of food and a different type of way that people dresses doesn't bring you diversity and inclusion. It doesn't bring you belonging. What does it look like when a community is infused with inclusion and belonging? What does it look like? What does it feel like? So often I go to the concept that Amy Edmonds really flushes out, which is psychological safety, right? I have the opportunity to be able to dissent and disagree and still feel safe, that there's not going to be some type of um, punitive treatment because I, I, I see something differently. In fact, maybe there's an invitation for me to have my voice and my experience in the room, even though it looks nothing like anyone else. Uh, the idea of these markers that we know are indicators of power over when you're actually exercising power with people that's really, that's also different because you have a sense of feeling safe and control and not that something's going to be wielded over you. There's so many different aspects of um, 
the idea of inclusion. People talk a lot about it feeling like being welcomed, but I think it's even beyond feeling welcomed. It's almost that there's not, you see the differences and the differences don't actually dictate your outcomes. That's a lot of it, um, I do think. I, there is something you said that I want to kind of push back on you a little bit about, if I can. Go for it. Go for it. So one thing that you mentioned was like the outcomes, uh, student outcomes show that kids learn better and have better outcomes when they feel like they belong. And I do think that's a, that's true in terms of you're not expending emotional effort and energy to overcome something or feel like you belong, to feel like you can accomplish but there is this degree of rigor that also can help you with a different kind of sustainability or what we call as grit and resilience is that in knowing that you might not be might not might not belong to a system you realize that you wholly belong to yourself and your community might look different even though i don't belong here in this space at school the fact that i belong somewhere is empowering and that even in this place where i am the alien I may not even be wanted here. I can still be successful. I still have aspirations that are valid and I can still be successful. And as a matter of fact, this is a part of the spaces that we go into. We know that we're not going to belong in every space. It's like this intense learning and a muscle that you build even. Now there is a difference between you know being broken in a system and not only feeling like you don't belong here, but that you're, you're unworthy and they are different. And sometimes even our ability to feel like we're connected to something or a space also has to do with our own mindsets and the other systems that we're into. Like it's not just at the school, right? We're bringing in all of ourselves too. And there might be things that the school, the school can do so much and it should to make sure that there is a sense of uh, invitation, safety or what have you, but we still are coming from multiple systems. And it's so important and something that I, I I feel so strongly about is that youth and others who navigate systems that might not welcome them or they might not belong in, you are building a different degree of resilience, which is where a lot of innovation also comes from, a different sense and understanding of who you are because you understand who you are not, um, a different understanding of the spaces you want to create because you realize the spaces you don't want to create and what the impact is. So I hope I don't know if I did justice to that concept because I definitely don't want to leave it in a way that um, oh the best thing is for you to struggle and you should be grateful for having to struggle but there is a power in how it can support us when we know that it's unlikely in many spaces that we will ever belong fully right yeah I look at I think what you've done there is you've added some lovely nuance to that notion of belonging and in any given life we don't belong everywhere we but we need to belong somewhere. And we need to feel as though we belong somewhere. That question of adversity that you're talking about is a really, really interesting one because when we ask um, teachers and students around the world, and we've been running a, a, a global research project on character education for the last decade now, and it's probably the largest in the world. Um, and, we, and, and quite often when we talk, uh, and, I, and I know you mentioned the, you know, the, the Duckworth stuff around, uh, around grit in particular, um, people will latch onto that notion of grit as though it is the answer. And then if you just ask a simple question to them, so do you want people to live a life which is entirely gritty? And they'll sit there and go, oh, well, no, of course. So, so it's, it's like adversity is very important in character formation. Adversity is very important in the growth of potential. It's not the only thing. There's a concept I think that we've started to sort of play with more and more and more, and that's the notion of wrestling. So we wrestle with 
feeling in and feeling out. We wrestle with that which is inside us and the desire to achieve some sort of inner drive and we wrestle with the expectations of those around us. We never quite achieve a perfect solution for those things and we may never know what the right answer is, but it is in the wrestling that we move forward around that. The psychological safety that you talk about is, you know, and Adriano talks about that sort of stuff all the time is that if you don't have that, those conditions sitting in around that, then it becomes difficult, okay? So you've given, I've given a simple answer, you've nuanced it, I've nuanced it. We live in a world now that doesn't have time for nuancing and likes short five, 10 second grabs. How do we help people build a space where we can have a discourse like this, where we can tease out from each other the different moving parts? It's a complex world. We shouldn't be expecting simple answers. How do we help people to find the time to build layers of complexity in their approaches? Even earlier when you were talking about stories and understanding that, and I thought, yeah, we don't do enough of sitting with ourselves to even understand our stories or who we want to be. And I agree with you in terms of the speed of things. What are we losing because of the constant pace and speed? And I think there has to be a degree of intentionality so that we are having these conversations. People talk a lot about needing to be in different communities and spaces so that you understand what it's like to be in diverse communities and build your own muscles around that. But what does it matter if you're not having a conversation, if you're not eyes wide open and being present and slowing down to figure out what, who are these people and how do I connect with them? Let me learn from you and let me figure out what this means to me as well. And the idea of needing to slow down to, gosh, for one, just let yourself process, but to be able to appreciate spaces and people because people aren't just what you see, right? Like the layered layers that you gave about your story and the immigrant background. And I just saw you so differently after you you name that and it, it makes my connection to you different. And it is, um, I think it is the, the carrot or the incentive of how much more beautiful the world is if you slow down to actually speak and connect with people as well and take the time. Um, I think that there are other ways like listening to podcasts and other things where you can actually understand different stories and narratives as well. So there are a lot of different ways, but I think at the, at the end of the day, you have to be intentional to make those moments happen. You know, it's interesting. So much of what both of you are sharing, particularly you just then feel about those spaces in between of struggle, where, where individuals really have to wrestle with their vulnerability. And, and I suppose I'm, I'm stealing a quote there or, or part of a quote of, of, uh, of that idea of rumbling with vulnerability from your friend, uh, Brene Brown. I want to just extend that line a little bit there because the next question that I have relates to organizational change and the challenge that individuals have when the agenda is for transformation, for a community to continue to evolve, particularly school communities, Ico, because they are places that are deeply human-centered. Often we forget that, by the way, in schools, but we are deeply human-centered. And school leaders have to handle quite a lot of resistance to that transformation, to that change. Even some of the most effective school leaders who are prepared to rumble in their vulnerability, who are prepared to say that we want to lead through crisis, that I don't have all the answers, but collectively we can do this. We can keep rising and moving forward, particularly around this space of diversity and inclusion and equity. How can school leaders continue to help those who resist change 
and personal growth? How can we support them through processes so that they can be part of a solution as opposed to the perception that they are just blockers? There's a few things. So as I thought about, hey, what are my knee-jerk answers about how to deal with Mm -hmm. that? And I think about just the process of change management or what have you. But I think also it's great that the leader is vulnerable and courageous and ready to rumble. But the success of it isn't about one person being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. It's actually about the community also doing this. So those, the ones who might be resistant, understanding what's underneath that, why are you as resistant? What's happening? And what we do know is that one issue within organizations that comes up a lot is the fear of being irrelevant. Mm-hmm. If something changes, We know that when people have to go through quite a bit of change, even if they know and buy into the fact that this is better, this is good, I do believe in it, that there still needs to be space for a grieving process of letting go of what you know, what you feel secure in, and what you know that you can already ace, like that idea of nostalgia. So there has to be the space created for the grieving, for the naming, for others to be invited in to also be, um, be vulnerable. So that psychological safety that we talked about before has to cascade throughout and inviting people to also be a part of that conversation and what do they need? Because they could totally be bought in, but not understand clearly, what does this mean for me? Or it doesn't feel right. I don't know why it doesn't feel right, but I'm going to resist it. But if they're able to unpack it, it's, oh, it doesn't feel right because it's going to be something really new that I don't understand and that might be scary. For equity work, what we often hear is, like even with uh, when you think about gender equity and not just racial equity, a lot of men feel like there's no more space for me here. Everything's going to be about just bringing in women. I'm not going to be wanted anymore. So if you don't give voice to those things and you can't counter them and actually inject the truth of the intention and someone's in fear and maybe the the top level emotion that you feel, the level level one emotion that you see is anger. If you're talking about equity and saying more indigenous black and brown kids, like we want to have more of an opportunity for them to succeed, all of a sudden someone else might be thinking, what does this mean for me? Oh, I'm not going to be as valuable. I'm not going to be as um, valued as well. So a lot, you have to figure out what's underneath the resistance. And I appreciate one of the questions posed, and Brene says this a lot too, is just what's the most generous interpretation? If somebody's actually doing the best they can, Now, what do I do to be able to help them along in the journey? So now I'm naming the resistance for what could be happening and I'm helping them to name it with me. So now it's not just a story I'm telling myself. It's about let's put it all out on the table so that I can better understand and you can better understand what these emotions are or why there's resistance. Yeah, this is this is just this is gold today. This is absolute gold today. Uh, okay, uh, this notion of being irrelevant is really powerful, even in, in in learning communities that have really strong kind of psychological safety structures in place, where where people uh, have always felt included. Uh, you still can feel quite irrelevant. It's often a feeling that educators encounter particularly with the rise of technology and the pervasive nature in which it is just continually disrupting all industries and, and of course, uh, the education space. And no better time than right now during a pandemic where remote learning has become something that was once foreign, but now is is something that we all need to use to keep young people uh, connected and learning and so on. I often talk to students about two constructs. And those two constructs are about love and fear how in my lived experience, uh, in my short 
48 years, soon to be 49 actually, 48 years, is that the, the majority of individuals I encounter, I'm talking mainly about adults, operate often from this position of fear, from the deep construct of fear, fear of whether or not they're good enough, fear whether or not they're going to be found out, uh, fear or not whether they're going, to be, they're going to fit in. However, in every one of those encounters, I, I, I feel that I have a responsibility to help that individual you know, see their possibility. It's a bit like a, a hero of Phil's and my, Maya Angelou and her famous quote, you know, hope and fear can occupy the same space, but only invite one to stay, you know. How can we create a better world, a world that doesn't operate more often or default more often to the deficit of fear, but be open to the possibility of love? That sounds so beautiful. Just as you said that, just made me really smile. Like, oh, can we do that tomorrow? Can we do that today? <laughs> you know, I think that one thing, it can be a challenge if you don't, if you do live in a constant state of, of fear and you actually may not know what love feels like or what it's like, um, or you don't know what love feels like beyond like romantic love or what have you. And you think about love of community, you think about agape love. So that modeling is so important, I think. For people um, modeling what does that look like and what could it possibly feel like uh, i love the fact that you mentioned the idea of having holding multiple narratives at once and multiple emotions at once and i think that for people to know that they can actually choose which one do you want and what does it mean for you to stay in this space versus that one and what does it take and what do you need for that to happen but again, that takes time and slowing down and also feeling like even asking that question, you even have a right to ask that question. What does it mean for me to have joy? What does it mean for me to walk in this space? I think you have to give yourself permission to even ask for that, to feel like it's possible and that you're worth it. Um, those are beginning points because I actually really believe that many people, one, don't know what joy or love feels like, which is sounds really sad. Um, but I also think that some people may not feel like they have permission to have that expectation for themselves. So modeling is important for one. What does it look like? What does it feel like? And inviting people to actually experience love over fear. That speaks to, the, 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 we, we would argue that the, the, the primary pedagogy for any learning is in relationship and, and, a, and a type of relationship, which is character apprenticeship and the role of the coach in that is to model and to scaffold um, and to coach uh, as well. So beautiful articulation of it. I've been sitting here and listening to you again, Iko, and, and I think I've worked out what it is that I really like about the way that you're, you're phrasing and you're putting things together. You have a particular skill, a particular expertise at Lexus. You know how to choose words which take us from the language of thinking to the language of feeling. I think the other thing I really like is you ask really good questions. And, th and this, is, this, is, this is absolute high-level expertise. If we're going to help teachers to become really high-level coaches, how did you learn to ask good questions? How did you learn to identify the right words to use that connect us to the heart as well as the head? What's been your learning journey to get you towards this expertise? You know, I think off the bat, I could say, well, you know, I was a lawyer. And <laughs> we use words a lot. But I actually think that there's probably a series of things and going back to our experiences, because I think you relate to this too, as being somebody who's from an immigrant family in a country is the experience of being an outsider and having to learn 
the systems and languages around you because maybe you have to translate them to the people in your household, one for them to be safe and for you to be safe. But I think that you also develop empathy and understand you start seeing things and systems and connecting with people without the use of words. You notice more, whether it's for good reasons or not, if it's because you have to have your own safety or your family's safety in mind or what have you, but also you see people beyond what they're saying if you don't understand language. So I think that I think that it's not just about the words, but the words land with people based on your connection with the people, right? I can't use the exact same language that I would use for with somebody else. So I think it's understanding who you're connecting with and how and being able to see them or not and see what else is happening around you and how do you want that person to walk away? Um, so I think it's a feeling part of the language that doesn't have anything to do with the words, but they help you select which words are going to help you to connect with people. Okay, this has been a most enlightening morning to spend with you and your deep insight and wisdom into becoming. I just want to say a huge thank you to you because today you remind me of my favorite word and that is permission. I have a blog called Permission is Triumph and really the magic in that is is not in the word permission or triumph. The magic is in the word is because it's the derivative of being or be, you know. And so much of what you have shared with us so eloquently today is the invitation into the permission of each individual saying yes to themselves. And there's a profoundness in that because that is, that I suppose that leads to, to that question I asked you a moment ago, love and fear, you know, because we're quick to say no, you know, we're quick to say no to everything. And whether it's those people who are challenged right now that might even look like me, but it's not me, but look like me who are challenged by a movement like Black Lives Matter or are challenged by a rise of an LGBTQI community in terms of their their presence and their inclusion. I just feel that if we are to build this better world, we've got to keep saying yes to our possibility and ourselves. And today we just encountered someone who gave us some tools, maybe even the entire toolkit, to be able to continue to give ourselves the permission to unlock our possibilities. So I just wanted to say thank you very much for being on Game Changers podcast. Uh, it's been a glorious morning. And uh, Phil, I think this is now going to be my favorite. Excellent. Excellent. You say that to everybody. I, I, know. I, I, I actually, I actually, I actually don't. I actually don't. But it's glorious to be in the presence of an individual who brings so much of themselves to the conversation. And your lived experience, no doubt, has has got you to where you are today. And I only wish you continued success going forward. Thank you for having me, both of you. And thank you for sharing some of your narrative with me, of course. And I learned, I learned actually some just by, based on the questions that you guys asked. So thank you for having me. It's been terrific today to have you with us, Ico. Obviously, for those of our listeners who are interested in following through further on this, you can find uh, Ico all over social media in particular. You might want to check out at rare underscore coach on Instagram. That might be a really good starting point. There's so much to be learned. There's so much we have learned today. Thanks, Ico. Thanks for having me. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.